Good morning. Um, I'm really happy to be here with you all on this third Sunday of Advent to talk to you about joy in the waiting. Um, And depending upon what translation of Bible you're looking at, you might find the word joy in your Bible as many as 218 times. Um, I am not going to talk about all 218 passages of Scripture this morning, um, but I did pick one Scripture, and for anyone who knows me well or maybe just knows a little bit about me, you wouldn't be surprised that I picked a passage of Scripture that has not just one but two pregnant people in it. I'm a birth doula and a childbirth educator, so um, I promise you, because I know that birth and pregnancy are not nearly as thrilling of topics for everyone, Um, and some people, it actually could be a a painful topic to talk about. So we are not going to focus primarily on that. We have a lot of other illustrations. Um, So some of those other illustrations I'm going to talk to you about today are um, the color pink, um, the Caribbean cruises, squash soup, the wheels on the bus song, Braveheart, and yawning. Um, So yes. Just so you can stay tuned, check these all off on your list. We're going to talk about, I'm sorry, I skipped tickling the first time. We're going to talk about tickling, Caribbean cruises, the color pink, squash soup, the wheels on the bus song, the movie Braveheart, and yawning. Um, So before we talk about any of those other things, let's go right to the scripture passage. And you already heard sort of a portion of it this morning that gives you a little bit of a background. Um, We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1. And we're told in this passage, before this, that um, Elizabeth in this passage is very old, that she's gone her whole life without being able to give birth to a child. And this is something that has caused her to feel shame, to have a sense of disgrace. Um, In his own old age, her husband, Zachariah, is visited by the angel Gabriel. And the angel, angel Gabriel tells them that their prayers have been heard and that Elizabeth is going to be pregnant and will give birth to a son. Um, Now, if this uh, geriatric pregnancy of Elizabeth is not enough of a stunner, about six months along in her own pregnancy, she gets a visit from her young cousin, Mary. Mary, it turns out, is expecting her own son. She had her own visit from the angel Gabriel, and she she would become pregnant by the um, power of the Spirit, and she would be giving birth to God's own son, the Son of the Most High. Um, what scripture tells us is that within days of getting this news, Mary literally takes off for the hills, um, and she comes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. This is where our scripture in Luke 1 picks up, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Now, As I talk about joy today, I actually didn't even choose this scripture because it describes the joy of a woman who long wanted to have a child and who was given the desire of her heart. Um, What I actually want to talk about is the joy that was expressed by that very own baby growing inside of her. I want to pay attention to John the Baptist and see how um, when he comes into contact with Jesus, what scripture tells us is that he leaps for joy inside his mother's body. 
So here's the thing. Mary has only known for a short period of time that she's pregnant. There's no telephones. There's no Western Union. There's not even any Pony Express to send that word ahead for Elizabeth to know that Mary is pregnant. Um, and Mary herself, uh, because of the timing, we can't be entirely sure. What we do know is that she had about an 80-mile journey. So that's about a week-long trip. If she left quickly after hearing the news from the angel Gabriel, she might have been beginning to feel pregnant, but probably not at all. Um, in all likelihood, Jesus' human body, embryo Jesus, if you will, was maybe as big as a sesame seed, possibly as big as a lentil, almost certainly not even as big as a blueberry. But the presence of God's Spirit God's perfect representation of himself in the person of Jesus was enough to cause John to leap, to dance for joy, to stretch the confines of his uterine home because he came into contact with Jesus. So this story from the Bible demonstrates the aspect of joy that I'd like most to concentrate on today. And it matches with a definition of joy that I found to be really helpful as I was preparing this talk. Um, I wish that I could attribute this definition to a well-respected theologian or maybe a preacher or a writer that everyone would recognize their name. Um, in truth, the way that I found this definition is that I googled, what is joy? And I found this uncredited, uncredited entry on a website called gotquestions.org. So here is what gotquestions.org told me about joy. It said that joy is the natural reaction to the work of God whether promised or fulfilled. And I've tweaked that a little bit to this, and this is my working definition of joy. And so what I hope you'll find compelling in um, that after we spend this time together this morning, you'll agree with this, that joy is the natural reaction, the reflex that is produced within us when we are exposed to God's presence and his work, whether promised or fulfilled. And the key word that I want you to pay attention to in that tweaked definition is the word reflex. Joy is a reflex. In this story from Scripture, the presence of Jesus within Mary's body created a leap for joy in John's own body. It was as if John could not help but react. He couldn't help but feel the joy in the presence of Jesus. So joy is this thing that just happens. It's this thing that is produced within us when we encounter God's goodness, whether it's encapsulated in his presence or just in evidence of him at work. It's not necessarily a choice. It's not willed and it's not planned. It's just that when we encounter God, when we see evidence of his work, we have this involuntary built-in response. So it's as sure as when the doctor bangs on your knee and you kick. Just how your pupils will dilate when the room gets dark, and the same way that if we cranked up the heat in this room, everybody would start to sweat. Just as your physical bodies are made to react to stimuli in the environment, so our spiritual selves are made to respond to the reality of our creator when we encounter him. Now, this idea of joy as a reflex stands in pretty stark contrast to kind of my assumptions and some of the things that I think of when I thought of joy, when I think about um, how I was brought up and some of the things I was taught. When I first knew that I was going to be sharing this morning on the topic of joy, something immediately came to mind. And if you grew up like me, this might be something that you're familiar with. 
Um, This might have been something I was taught in Sunday school. It very well could have been on a fill-in-the-blank test at my Christian school. Um, It was that we had this acronym for how to get joy, how to find joy, and it was J-O-Y. Does anybody know what is the J for? Jesus, the O is for others, and the Y is for yourself. So this means that if you want to have joy, you need to put Jesus first, others next, and yourself last. What's that? Clever. What? It is clever, but I'm going to have to say that this idea that joy that comes from service, from choices and actions on my part, is something that's permeated my perspective, but that I don't really find truth in. Um, I know that from my own experience, it's definitely true that when I serve other people, especially out of devotion to Jesus, that it can create a whole host of positive emotions. But it can also just as easily lead to something that I, I, I was just a light bulb moment when someone used the word, compassion fatigue. It gives you this idea that God grants us joy because we do these good works that he rewards us with joy for. Um, but I can say from my own personal experience and from my observation of other people that there can be times where you just give and you give and you give, and instead of feeling joy, I can think of um, a particular time, and it was the day that my friend said, I think you're compassion fatigued. There was a young woman in my life who I was giving and giving and giving to, and I was feeling physically ill, and I was starting to feel so resentful that she wasn't thankful for anything I was doing. Um, It wasn't joyful. There wasn't joy in that. Um, So I think because I'm not alone in this sort of perspective. We have a church that's filled, of, filled with people who have really big hearts. There are helpers, there are empaths, there are social justice warriors in this room. So if it's not you yourself, there's probably someone sitting in the row next to you who understands what this idea of compassion fatigue is. So what I want to do today and what I'm going to encourage us to do is to reorient our idea about joy and to see what is it and what is it not so that we can tap into real joy. So what if we can figure out our own best ways, the ways that God has made us to recognize and experience him in the world so that we can produce this reflex in ourselves, so that we can have this steady response of joy that helps to sustain us in this broken and hurting world? I predict that like a powerful drug, if you can get a taste of pure joy, you're going to have the drive to seek out God's presence again and again and again. See, the powerful thing about reflexes is that even though they are involuntary, even though they just happen, that doesn't mean that they're out of our control. We can build them, and we can shape them, and we can strengthen them. For example, uh, just sit where you're at, and I'm going to say a couple words. Let's see what happens. You ready? Buffalo chicken wings. Spicy pad thai. Sriracha. Does anybody in here have their salivary glands kicking into overload or what we call in our houses, our house that we say you're getting all spittily. Um, So here's another example. I have this unbelievable, amazing power over my children. All I have to do is move my hands in this motion in the proximity of their belly and they can't help but laugh. Um, I play this game where I just say, what what are you laughing at? I'm just exercising my fingers while they're just hovering an inch away from their belly. But the remembrance and the anticipation of what it was like to be tickled before and what it's going to feel like if I move one inch and tickle their belly is enough to send them into utter hysterics. See, when we have experience with something, simply anticipating it 
helps us to create that same response that we had when we experienced it. And this is really good news. This means that the power of reflexes, that the power of joy, is something that can work on our behalf even when we're in circumstances that would not naturally produce joy. We all go through times where we wonder where God is and we think, why don't I feel him? Why hasn't he shown up and made things right in the world? Why do I have to wait and wait and wait for him to be good to his promises? And Advent is our, our time of waiting. It's this time where we're waiting for Jesus to show up. And in general, we don't usually think of, enjoying, of waiting as being very enjoyable. It might be torture at worst. It might be boring at best. But it's not something that we would usually think of as joyful. Something that you hear around our church all the time is that because we're living um, in awareness of the kingdom of God, it means that there are things, um, this tension that we live in, where we're experiencing the already and the not yet. So God has already spoken his promises to us, his promises of faithfulness, but we might not yet really see what that means for our life. He's already, uh, he's already demonstrated his utter defeat of sin and death and shame on the cross, but we might not feel that deliverance for ourselves yet. We might still feel the pain in life, or we might feel the sting of the death of a loved one. Can we really have joy in the not yet? I think we can. Um, I think that we can seek to remember where he has been faithful in the past and then anticipate it in the future. And then when we do that, we can experience that joy in the present, even if it's in painful circumstances and even when it's just plain boring. In fact, I'm going to argue that to a degree, waiting in anticipation of future goodness can actually be something that makes our joy greater. This is an idea that is completely backed up by the science of psychology. Studies consistently show that what psychologists call anticipatory joy causes people who are looking forward to an event to be as happy or even happier in that time leading up to the event. Um, one of the, a really good example of this is planning a vacation. It's arguably just as exciting to plan and savor the anticipation of a vacation as it is to actually go. Um, I can testify to this 100% because I have spent the last 26 days of my life joyfully anticipating a Caribbean cruise with my family. Uh, it's been hard to wipe the smile off my face even when I've been doing things as boring as reserving a parking spot at the cruise port and filling out pages and pages and pages of um, passport applications for my kids, actually doing it all in blue ink and realizing that it needed to be in black ink and filling out pages and pages and pages again. I still got a kick out of it because I'm so excited about having this time with my family. Um, even if I could ma wave a magic wand that would relieve me of my most dreaded activity, packing, I still wouldn't want to give up the joy of this anticipation and looking forward. So if someone was just going to wake me up tomorrow morning and say, get up, you're going on a plane, let's go, um, it would still be fun to go away, but I would have missed out on all that anticipation and all that joy that was infused in my days leading up to it. So when all is said and done, even though I'm going to enjoy five great days with my family, I'm going to have had 26 awesome days of anticipation. There's something sweet and just a special delight, and it's a unique joy that we can only experience when we're waiting in that not yet. It's building up for that promise to be fulfilled and that longing that is just so sweet. I know it's not fair 
to paint this picture of waiting as being something that we can just think happy God thoughts and all of a sudden it makes it better. There are times where our present circumstances are pure pain. Um, there's a beautiful image though that helps me when I'm grappling with these kind of circumstances and when I'm trying to find where, how can I get to that presence of God, that presence of Jesus in life's most painful moments. Um, so I've already covered tickling. I've covered Caribbean cruises. It's time, up to, time to bring up the movie Braveheart. Um, so since Braveheart came out only 22 years ago, um, I can understand why some people in this room maybe haven't seen it yet. Um, that's sarcasm. It's a classic. I've seen it a half a dozen times at least myself. Um, so I think this illustration will be helpful whether or not you've seen it. But if I am ruining the ending for you because you haven't seen it, it's really not my fault that you've had better things to do for the past 22 years. Um, while this film is only loosely based on historical events, um, it tells the story of Scotsman William Wallace and how he liberates his countrymen from the oppression of the English throne. Early on in the film, Wallace's young bride is violated and murdered by the English occupants. And after he leads his countrymen into some of the most epic battles that are ever, have ever been fought on the silver screen, uh, we get to the end and Wallace is captured and tortured and murdered. There's so many parallels in this movie to the figure of Jesus Christ that even though it is a gory and violent film, it's something that I treasure and something that I really, I just love to see and, and to think of my Jesus when I watch this movie. Um, I see this especially in the far too drawn out scene where Wallace is being tortured. And rather than begging for mercy, he proclaims freedom over his people. And then at that moment where the pain is at its most intense, it's as if he completely disconnects. He doesn't hear the voice for his, of his torture. He doesn't hear the crowd anymore. But he looks out and he envisions his bride walking among the crowd. The first and every time I've experienced this moving scene, I immediately think of the verse from Hebrews 12 that talks about Jesus' death on the cross. And it tells us, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So I imagine Jesus enduring that pain on the cross, naked, his skin torn open, full of shame, the, our shame that he's taken on. And he's willing to do that because of the joy set before him. And what is that joy? It's us. It's his beloved. So I think of Jesus on the cross and imagine him having that faraway look in his eye, thinking this is worth it because this is what is going to bring me to the presence of my beloved. Our Jesus is not at all unfamiliar with suffering. And I really wish I could stand up in front of you today and tell you some way that you could erase your pain or you could just defeat suffering and not have to deal with it, but I can't. And the best that I can do is to say that I really, really hope that I'm onto something here. I really hope that Jesus is going to do what he says and show up in your suffering and that when he does, his presence is going to be able to produce that response of joy in you. And if nothing else, if you're in that painful place, I hope that maybe having this picture of Jesus, um, knowing that he's present in your suffering, knowing that you are worth his suffering, means that he cares to come and show up for you in your suffering. It's a really heavy thing. So why don't we right now just take a cleansing breath together before we move to the next part? I know I need to. Life is marked by suffering. We're all going to experience it. 
But in reality, our world is so filled with evidence of God's goodness and his gifts to us. There is so much stimuli out there. There are so many things that can produce in us this reflex of joy. We're going to turn back to scripture again and get some ideas now about how we can actually cultivate this joy in our lives and cultivate this response. We get really good at it. Um, I do really like the story about Mary, Jesus, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist, but I should be forthright and say that this word that's used to describe John's joy in the scripture is one that actually only shows up about three times in scripture. It's an exceeding joy, a lifting your feet off the ground, jumping for joy. And I want us all to get to experience that at some point in life, but it's perfectly fine with me if I can have the sort of joy that lets me, you know, stay seated, keep my feet on the ground. I think that's a still good enough joy to want to pursue and have in my life. So we're going to widen out the lens, and we're going to look at the word that's actually used in the Bible um, most of the time to describe joy. And that's um, the New Testament, which is written in Greek. The word that is um, translated as joy is the word kara. Um, Kara shares the same root word as another very closely related word that you might have heard, charis. Um, While kara means joy, charis is typically translated as either grace or gifts. It's really helpful to me to know that joy and gracious gifts are so closely related to each other. Um, It's really helpful. It helps me make this connection that I think enables me to really practically get more joy out of the day. And here's, here's an example of how this has worked in my life. Um, I had what I would actually call a supernatural experience with a bowl of soup not that long ago. I was at Panera, and to pair with the just amazingly perfect fall day it was outside, I thought, mm, let me try this autumnal squash soup. That sounds good. Um, and I've made some pretty good squash soup. You know, I've made some. I've had some other places. And all I can tell you is that I had that first bite of soup And it was amazing. And my train of thought went to like, oh my gosh, this soup is so good, all the way to how could you ever have this soup and not believe that there's a good, loving God? (laughs) Um, It was just this this amazing creator who created butternut squash and gave people this genius to do these sweet and savory spices to come up with this. It was just, I know it sounds silly, but it was like, that was really how I felt. Like, there is a God and he's good and he loves me because I just ate this soup. Um, so that, that's joy. Um, and it, it makes me wonder, what if that was our response to everything we see, every one of God's gifts? What if we could reframe it? So the blue sky greeting us when we walk outside, the laugh of a person who we love, um, maybe the brilliance of a scientific discovery that we learn about, or the deliciousness of a really well-written novel. What if we just were able to look at each of these pleasurable experiences as a gift of God? Whether we acknowledge it or not, he is sending these gifts to us. He is showing up to us a thousand times a day, all the time. His charis is present around us all the time. Um, If we can reframe that bowl of soup, a song on the radio, or even just how nice it feels to lay your your head on the pillow at the end of a hard, long day, if you can call that a gift from your creative and loving God, then joy is just going to be your natural reaction. So if you want more Kara in your life, get in the habit of noticing and recognizing everything around you that is a charis, a gift of God's grace. The more we can tune our senses to recognize God and his goodness and his presence around us, the more joy we are going to produce. Um, There's only one last thing that I want to share with you about today. 
Um, you wouldn't notice this from our particularly stylish and beautiful advent wreath up here. Um, the colors of this, uh, this advent wreath, all the candles are a nice cranberry, very classy, and I like it. Um, but most traditional advent wreaths are made up of four candles. Three of them are either purple or blue. And then the, I'm sorry, three of, yes, three of them are purple or blue, and one of them is pink. Um, and I honestly never questioned or wondered or tried to find out why that was until I was preparing for this sermon. Um, but this is what I learned. Blue and purple are colors that are usually associated with repentance or with fasting. And many people in church history have actually used Advent as a time of fasting, the same way that many people do for Lent, the 40 days that lead up to Easter. Um, but one week of Advent was set apart, and it was set apart for feasting. It was this week of joy that we're celebrating now. Um, and it was symbolized by the color pink. Um, so pink is my son Callum's favorite color. I wore it this morning just because I was speaking on joy. This is the only pink thing I wear. I could totally take it or leave it. But as I've savored this idea of pink and dug deeper into this, I've come to really, really love and appreciate the symbolism behind it. Um, here's what really, here's the connection I made that I think is really beautiful. I recently spent a good part of an entire weekend binge reading a blog series called Blue Baby's Pink. Has anybody in here read it? If you haven't, I highly recommend it. Um, it's subtitled A Southern Coming Out Story in 44 Episodes. Uh, somehow I read all 44 episodes, and I didn't really think or question um, what the title of it meant. I just assumed that because it was a coming out story, maybe blue and pink in the way that we often say that pink is feminine and blue is masculine, and I thought that there was something having to do with gender stereotypes, and that was why it was Blue Baby's Pink. Um, but the birth junkie in me couldn't help but just come to sweet tears when I read the epilogue and I found out what the title actually meant. Um, the author had purchased that domain, Blue Baby's Pink, many years before he even knew how he would tell his own story. He had encountered the phrase and just found it so powerful. He was reading an interview with a neonatologist, and that is the kind of doctor who specializes in caring for the tiniest and most fragile of newborn babies. In that interview, this 83-year-old neonatologist, he had preserved, spent his life preserving countless, countless lives of little tiny babies. And he explained in one simple phrase what gave him the most joy, to turn blue babies pink. I've seen this phenomenon before my own eyes dozens of times. That's why I think I have one of the best jobs in the world. Um, a baby who was first born is trying out their lungs and their for full circulatory system and some of their organs for the very first time. Up to that point, their mother's oxygenated blood and the placenta has been doing all the work for them. Um, and so at that moment of birth, most babies, whether they're going up, gonna grow up to be a nice peach or a beautiful brown, have a sort of bluish tint or purplish tint to their bodies. Um, the reassurance that the birth attendant looks for is something that we call pinking up. The baby is dried and rubbed and stimulated to take that first breath. And when they have that first cry and that first breath that inflates their lungs for the first time and takes oxygen to all the parts of their body, it chases that blue away and gives us that pinkish reassurance that they are full of life. 
Um, this is most evidence on the bottom of feet. Uh, some, I tell people that I work with, it's going to look like they forgot to wipe the ink off of your baby's feet from footprints because they just have blue feet for a day or two. But eventually that blue will turn a nice rosy color. Maybe you have never before this moment heard this term pinking up. But I know we have all heard the term and understand what it means to feel the blues. Feeling the blues could be as mild as like a meh kind of day. Or it might be as severe as wondering if life is even worth living anymore. And this author of this blog knew that he was as helpless as a tiny baby who needed big, godly hands to stimulate him to life. Unless it sounds like I'm focusing too much and giving too much attention to a blog written by a man in the 21st century, I want to share the scripture from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, where we hear God's words to a baby struggling for life. Starting in verse 4, it says, On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked upon you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. In our most dire spaces, when we're barely holding on to life, in the bluest of times, God can show up and speak to us and tell us, live. And our spirits know how to respond. They know how to live. They know how to produce joy in that presence of their creator. Maybe there's a place in your life where you need God to touch, to bring you to life, and to deliver that infusion of pink. He's made your spirit to recognize his and to produce joy. I think it's a great idea to just savor this, this picture of pink and just think pink this whole week. Just think pink. Every time you notice the color pink in your daily life, let it be a reminder that God in his goodness and his grace is able to stir up joy in you no matter your circumstances. And along with that, again, if pink is not your thing, I have some other suggestions about some ways to just infuse more joy into your life. Oh, man. Did anybody in here... The cool thing about joy and about reflexes is that they're contagious. Maybe you're going to catch it here in a minute. Um, some people are just so receptive to God's goodness. They have joy that other people catch. Just like a yawn can be contagious and can cause you to spread that joy to someone else. Check this girl out. Um, I love it. I love thinking about people that bring joy into my life. Um, this girl, she's actually singing the words, ain't nobody going to steal my joy. The sound's going to go away, but don't, I don't care if you ignore me. Just keep watching her. Um, no one is going to steal her joy, but we are all going to catch it. I don't know how any of those other kids are standing still. Um, I, I kind of want to move my body when I see her. So isn't that beautiful that reflexes can be contagious and joy can be contagious? I can predict that every Wednesday from 12.50 to 1 p.m., I'm going to be joyful. Um, and the reason I can do this is because I host a baby play group, and I facilitate it, and this is our circle time. And so every 
week at that time, I have all these little humans treating me like I'm the Beatles when I'm singing the song, The Wheels on the Boss and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Um, it's this crazy, contagious joy. So if you can think of someone who brings joy in your life, hang out with them. Call them this week and set up a date. If they're in person, you know, catch a meal with them, get on the phone with them, put their picture on your screensaver. Um, if you don't have as many people that you know that make you feel this way, find some strangers on YouTube. Find some animals, something out there that just helps you to savor and, and just see what joy looks like. I think that it can give you that jump start for your own reflexes to where you will continue to feel more and more joy. Um, and besides people, besides humans and animals, whether we know them or not, just let all of creation, people, science, nature, every possible sensory experience trigger joy in your life. When you say, who is the God that is behind this? Who is the God that would give this gift to me? If you can dig a little deeper beyond what you see on the surface or what you feel when something is just pleasurable and nice, I think that you are going to tune your senses to become more and more joyful. I find that even just things like listening to science-themed podcasts always just impress me with how genius and amazing God is. So if you can peel back the layers and draw these associations between these awesome things in the world that we can see and the God who did these for you, I think that you're going to have moments like my bowl of squash soup where you just get enough joy to sustain you through that whole day. And finally, I just want to say a word for those of you who would identify with that idea of being compassion fatigued. You know this, but I'm going to say it. You cannot care well for other people in that state. Is it possible that you could release the needs and the hurts and the pain and the despair that you see around you just put those into the hands of Jesus long enough to take some time and some space for yourself to cultivate some joy, some real joy. This is not a treat yourself, go buy something nice at the store, or have a pint of ice cream while you sit on the couch and watch TV, but something that really shows you, shows your heart where God is, what he's at work doing, and cultivates that reaction, that reflex of joy in you. I would encourage all of us not to settle for escape, not to settle for just temporary pleasures, but to dig below and say, where is the God that gave this to me? And purposely make spaces in your life to cultivate joy. It's going to give you the fortitude that you need to get through life in this broken and hurting world. So all of us, before this day is over and every day, do something that's going to help bring you joy. And don't feel guilty about it. I totally forbid you to feel guilty about it. I think that if we can do this, if we can create more joy, then we are going to be able to go out into this broken world and deliver joy so much more effectively to those places where we see brokenness and we see hurting and we see despair, even as we wait. Let's go ahead and say a prayer together. God, we thank you for this sweet gift of joy. We thank you for your gifts all around us, your truth, your presence, uh, the way that you've made us to remember and the way that you've helped us to be able to anticipate you. God, and I pray that we would just be so tenderly aware of you, that we don't have to strive, that we don't have to earn, God, but that you can just show up and that we can have joy. Would you do that for us this week and for months and years and the rest of our life to come? Amen. <laughs>